This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, Covington and Woodley appears to be a fight that is actually going to happen. What's at stake in that welterweight contest? I will tell you. Plus, this kid is the first UFC fighter to get three wins inside the UFC in 2020. What a tear he's on. Yusuf Zalal will be here to share his story. And Cody Garbrandt is getting a flyweight title shot. Is that deserved? We'll have that debate as well. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays at 1 p.m. East Coast time right here on Sirius XM Foundation Channel 156. Don't forget about the mailbag, Show at gmail.com. I want to talk about this news that came out yesterday, uh, which is just kind of crazy if you think about it, but still kind of important just the same. Let's talk about this news with Tyron Woodley and Colby Covington, shall we? So the UFC, I want to be clear about this, has not reported it, uh, or I should say announced it. It's not official, 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 official in that way. So please take what I am saying to you right now as something of conditional. It's not exactly, uh, you know, ready for prime time, but all indications are that a long-awaited welterweight title fight between Colby Covington and Tyron Woodley is going to happen. They are expected to meet expected to meet on September 19th in Las Vegas. Now here's the story, uh, MMA fighting had a good uh, essentially you know uh, assessment of the situation. Quote, Woodley initially posted the news on Instagram. Multiple people with knowledge of the booking confirmed to MMA fighting that the matchup is currently in the works for the September 19th card. Although Contracts have not been issued or signed at this time. UFC officials have not confirmed the matchup yet. Now, as we know, these guys were one time, briefly, but one time training partners back at American Top Team in Florida. Covington eventually won the interim title in June of 2018, uh, beating Rafael Dos Anjos. He was supposed to fight in October after that, but he got nasal, I think, sinus surgery. So they just moved on without him and had Woodley fight Darren Till. Woodley, of course, uh, demolished him. Then Woodley suffered a thumb injury that prevented him from competing again until March of 2019, at which point they gave Kamaru Usman a title shot rather than Covington again. Um, Now, Covington, in I think this month, posted a copy of a signed bout agreement while calling Woodley out for not signing the contract. Turned out Woodley was offered that date, but he was unable to compete on that timeline following his loss to Gilbert Burns in May. Now it appears, now it appears, that those obstacles have been cleared for Covington and Woodley to finally get to go on September 19th. Now, I don't have a big part of the story for you, um, except to say the following. I know that you guys, and I had told you, that September 19th was supposed to be UFC 253. That is going to be Costa and Arasanya for the middleweight title. Bit of a side note. This is super not confirmed, but some of the reports I've seen, and I'll give credit, I believe it came from Ariel Hawani over at ESPN. The reports from him were that the UFC is considering, considering making that 19th a standalone event in Las Vegas and then pushing Adesanya and Costa to the following weekend, which would be the 26th, and doing it in Fight Island. Why is that significant? Well, it adds another event that they were not planning to do number one, and then number two, 
it would put the title fight in a big cage versus the small one that's going to take place here. Now, neither here nor there. That's not what I want to discuss at this moment. Let's focus our attention while we can on this story, Woodley getting back to action against Covington. First, let's discuss what is on the line for both here. Both are in need of a win. Both are coming off of losses, not immediately to Kumar Usman, but both are in a position now where back in, you know, early parts of 2019, neither of them had losses to Kamaru Usman. They both got one in 2019, just handing out L's, Kamaru Usman is, to Colby Covington and Tyron Woodley. Tyron Woodley got back to action again and lost to Gilbert Burns. He has lost, accumulatively, 10 consecutive rounds. Now, he is not fighting chumps, but he has lost 10 consecutive rounds. He is 38 years of age, I believe. Let me verify that. We've talked about his age numerous times on this show. He currently sits, I believe in April was his birthday. Uh, yes, he is 38 years of age as of April. Okay. Colby, I think, is much younger. I think Colby's sitting around 32 or so. He currently sits at 32. Yeah, he turned 32 in February. Okay. So, both are in need of a win. Both of their last fights were losses. Kumaru's in December. Obviously, the Gilbert Burns one was what? In June? Something like that? July? For Tyron? But it's a lot more than just getting a W. Number one, these two guys are heated rivals. Number two, these were guys who were supposed to fight for the title, right? So at some point in time, this was supposed to be the epic welterweight clash. There are still bragging rights on the line, independent of whether or not they are rivals. So you can add both of those sort of levels in. I mean, they're coming in at this point in weakened positions, given the losses, but there is statue there. But to me, it's a lot more than that. Let me tell you something. I don't like, I'll just say it outright. I'm not making a prediction because I think, I think generally fights are unknowable. People like to imagine that they know, but they don't really know. But the reality is, I think for um, for Tyron, um, I think if he loses this, that's probably it. And I don't think he's going to win this one. Covington pushed Usman to the brink. Now I know that the scorecards were all over the place. Where even some, I think one of the scorecards had him up three to one heading into the fifth, but the other ones were kind of in the middle, two two. I think the other one had Covington up three to one. I mean, those were all close fights, close rounds, and given how well Masvidal did in the wrestling department against Usman, and granted, there's a lot of different factors at play there. You know, late notice, fighting at six in the morning, all that stuff. Covington likes his chances a second time. I think I would say Usman's toughest fight in the UFC. I mean, maybe you want to say Masvidal because it went the full distance, but I would say that, like the tension and the damage he took was much more significant in the fight with Covington than anything else. I still think Covington is very much a high-end, top-level welterweight, and you can like that fact or you can hate that fact, but uh, it, it, I just think it's the reality. Now, I will say this. If Woodley gets a win, that is hugely redemptive for two reasons. One he would end the losing streak he's on, the bad one. Again, not just two fights, but 10 consecutive rounds. I mean, for, for people who are fighting non-title affairs, that's, you know, four fights or more to lose 10 consecutive rounds. That means you could have potentially lost three fights in a row 
lost all of the rounds in those fights, then had a fourth fight and gotten finished in that one. I mean, that's a very bad losing streak, okay? So he would stop that. Number two, getting it over a rival. Number three, I think the most important part about this, if he gets that win, the key to understanding it is not merely stopping the blood loss, so to speak, from the, the, the losing streak. It is on top of that, you would now be beating a top-level contender. He hasn't done that since he beat Darren Till. So that means you'd be like right back in the thick of things. Now, I don't know that it would mean he could get a title again, but if he loses, you got to look around and say, that's got to be it. Again, Covington, Burns, Usman, they're not chumps. But what are you doing this for to just take L's against the top-end guys um, if your goal is to get the title belt? I mean, it seems completely out of reach at that point. You could maybe take some fights against some other guys and win, but the purses would be a lot less. The fights would be a lot less interesting, and they'd be just as much work, if not more. You know, you got to be really careful about that kind of stuff. And for Covington, if he wins, ladies and gentlemen, he's right back in the thick of things himself. But I'll, I'll say this. If Woodley loses this one, he, he will have some very, very serious choices to make at that point. And i got to be honest. This is not a prediction. This is not Luke saying, oh, he knows what's going to happen here. Ladies and gentlemen, I do not know what is going to happen here. But if, if I'm just reading the tea leaves on, on how Woodley has looked and what particular skills Covington brings, granted, he has some unique weaknesses too, but he has a high, I mean, say what you want about Covington. He's got high volume output, high, ridiculously de strong degree of cardio, great takedowns, relentless pursuit of them, can press you into the fence, overwhelm you with rain. I mean, listen, sometimes a place can flood because it gets overwhelmed in one quick go with just a torrential downpour. Sometimes things can get flooded because the rain just doesn't stop. Either way, you're getting flooded. That is Covington's mark, the latter of them. He's not going to wow you with punching power or, you know, Khabib-like control on the ground with ground and pound. It's really He doesn't do much ground and pound. But he just will break you with relentless pursuit of offense. That's a very bad matchup for this version of Tyron Woodley. It's always been a bad matchup in that sense, but he had other things going for him. A lot of those have been taken away. That's a, bad, that's a tough fight, man. I understand why he's taking it. Go big or go home. Okay, I respect it. That's a tough fight, and I don't like his chances. And if, if, if that comes to fruition, you've got Colby Covington immediately relevant at the top of that division again, and you've got a Tyron Willie who has to ask himself some serious questions. Or you've got a Covington who is now very much reeling since coming off that great win over Robbie Lawler, and you've got a Tyron Woodley who's all of a sudden back in it. Huge, huge stakes involved. Hey, everyone. This is Lisa Ann, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, The Lisa Ann Experience. This is my chance to share with you my experiences, past and present, including how I went from living in the fantasy world of adult films to talking fantasy sports on Sirius XM. Each week, I'll introduce you to some of the people I've met on my journey and invite friends on to help me read through the endless ridiculousness that lands in my inbox. New episodes are available every Wednesday on the SiriusXM app and Apple Podcasts. Yusuf Zalal, by the way, the first fighter in 2020 to have three UFC fights, and in his case, I believe all three are wins. 
I mean, he is, you want to talk about killing the game right now. That's what this guy is doing. Just an unbelievably good job um, as a prospect. And only 23 years of age on top of that. Really young. Uh, Let me see how many fights. He has a bunch of fights. I think he's got like, I want to say 13, something like that. Uh, We'll pull it up here out of uh, Factory X. Sorry, 12 fights. 12 fights. I'm not sure any amateurs he has. And I believe he joins us via the magic of Zoom now. Hi, Yusuf. How are you? (laughs) What's up, brother? How are you? I'm doing quite well. Well, first of all, congratulations, man. You know, 2020 is going badly for the entire (laughs) world, except Yusuf Zalal. You have to feel a little bit good, maybe a little bit weird about that, huh? No, man. So it it was, it was definitely weird. I was like, uh, this is a quick story. I was, uh, so when we were quarantined for three months and like, I couldn't do nothing. So I had, uh, I have Ramadan, Ramadan, basically like, uh, it's a Muslim uh, community. We do a lot is like, basically you fast and you can't eat or drink throughout the day until like during daylight, right? Yeah. During daylight. So like sun goes up all the way to sun goes down. So basically I'm, I'm not drinking or eating for, about 14 hours plus, you know, just staying at home. And I couldn't go anything. Like the whole like state was shut down basically. So for me, it was like just sitting here and I was like, man, what, what am I doing? What am I going to do with my life, man? I just had my UFC debut and then I'm, I'm happy that I had the UFC debut. Now everything just shut down and I don't know what's going on. And then I was like, you know what? I'm about to raise chickens in my apartment. I raised chickens in my apartment, like baby chicks. So that's that's how crazy life was going for me. And then all of a sudden, I was like, as soon as Ramadan was over, we started, coach was like, well, we're going to have smaller groups to train with, like 10 people or less. And then it's the same people, like same people. All we're doing is training and go home, train, go home. That's it. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. I mean, I got nothing else to do. And then from there, the rest has been history. We had two fights in a row. So that's uh, that's pretty pretty awesome. So with they you, you had you fought as you mentioned UFC 247 in February that was pre-pandemic then you got that win against Jordan Griffin in June how did the call come about to fight in August it was it was June 27th and August 8th that's what was that 6 weeks when did they call yeah. you So I think they called me like 2 weeks before the fight they uh they called me and they were like this is at 11 at night and I was like this is very weird. I was like, why, why is coach calling me at 11 at night? Like coach is asleep by nine or eight. I was like, why, why, why is he calling me at eight at like 11? And then, uh, he was like, hold on, let me add, uh, uh, my manager, Jason to the call. And I was like, okay, he has to do something with the fight or something with the UFC. I don't know what's going on. There's no way he's going to add me in a call for no reason. And he was like, well, we took a fight for you at uh, August, uh, 8th. And I was like, Oh, cool. <laughs> like, I got nothing else to do. Let's do it. So he's like, I was like, yeah, let's do it. And then we, we just took it. Amazing. Uh, well, congratulations. It seems to be going really well. You must like this sort of Cerrone-like pace where it's just pretty quickly getting right back in there. I mean, the funny thing about it, for folks who may not realize it, you'll fight like you and everyone else. In the regional scene, it's not necessarily all that uncommon to see someone who fights five, six, I've seen seven fights in a year. In the UFC, it's really hard. This is a special time. Is this a pace you want to keep for as long as the UFC will let you keep it? Yeah, like, it's, 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 I'm young, you know, I'm 23, you know, it's like, I want to, I want to be the best I can be, you know, so that for me, it's, it will take time for me to be in the UFC cage, you know, like, it's not, 
you're not going to be a world champion just taking two fights. That's not, that's not how it goes. You know, you gotta, you gotta go out there and really experience the, the every minute in the UFC case. And that's what I really take out of it. You know, I want to go out there and really experience. Now I have like what, 15, 30, I think it was like an hour plus just in the UFC case. So that's, uh, that's pretty, pretty cool. The, the, to think about, you know, for sure. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, uh, I am a child of immigrant parents, so I'm curious about your story. What is uh, your story about you or your parents? How did y'all end up in your Colorado of all places? So my, uh, so my, my dad and my, my older brother came to the U S a year before us. Uh, my, my brother was hanging what, out with what year bad is that? people. Uh, let's see. I showed up in 2000, 2009, so they showed up in 2008, I think, 2008. Okay. Yeah, 2008. So they showed up in 2008. My dad and my brother was just hanging out with just bad people, man. He was like, they know his, fu- uh, like his future. If he kept hanging out with those guys, not going to be nowhere. So they were like, you know what? We're going to do anything in our power to really just get this kid out of here. And then they did. They really m- moved him to the U.S. and really just try to get his life together and really change everything down there. So after a year... Uh, my mom told us we're like it was me, my brother who passed away, and my sister. That's that's all the siblings that I have, you know. And they were like, "Oh, let's uh, we're gonna go visit them in the U.S." And I was like, "Awesome! Like I haven't seen my dad for a year, so let's definitely go do it." And I was like, "Cool!" And then literally a, a year and a half, we went to see them, and then my mom just realized she was like. I think it's better for you to stay stay in the U.S. and really have uh, have opportunities for you to to make a future, you know. And I was like, I don't want you to be the same as your brother back in Morocco. And I was like, I I, I couldn't say no because you know I, I came in here. It was like the American dream, you know. You, you show up here. I saw the snow first time in my life. I was like, I saw like how the stores are. Like just the groceries was completely different than than Morocco. And you know, I was I was young. You know, I was like, I'm not. I was like very sad that like I'm gonna leave my mom, but like in the end of the day, I was like, this is pretty cool. Like I might I can make something out of this, you know. And I was young, you know, young and stupid, like they say, you know. I was like coming here, just follow directions, you know, follow what my dad told me and stuff like that. But after after my mom left, it's like it's been it, it was crazy. My dad couldn't uh, they didn't accept his. Uh, so my dad is the only. Uh, guy in the family that went to college and actually has a diploma, like has a software, is a software engineer. So for him, they didn't accept his diploma in in the United States. Mm. So he had to work. He had to work at a a job at uh, at a manufacturer, like uh, lifting boxes and stuff like that at night. So he was he's a software engineer that's working a job that pays like I think it was like eight dollars, seven dollars an hour for. for when he showed up here because they couldn't accept his diploma. And then we were, he was driving like a $500 Kia that we used to help him at every night when he snows to get it out of the parking lot just for him to can drive to work. And and we lived in a in a two-bedroom apartment. And uh, it was me and my brothers in one bedroom and then my dad in the other bedroom. So that was, uh, that was a pretty crazy beginning for that. And then after like a year year two years my dad learned like english like he had like full full full-on english and he he was like you know what i'm just gonna go take the test i'm not even gonna try for all this and he took his test for his uh 
uh, like software engineer thing, like to show that he actually knows about the software engineer. He's just not, does not like have a, a, a diploma in Morocco. Like he actually knows about it. And so they gave him the diploma then, and then he can apply for jobs. But for me, I was just, I was in the middle school. Like I literally went to middle school, second, uh, uh, second semester, learned English in six months. And then I went to high school. And that was like, for me, that was like, kind of like, okay, like, this is, this is way different. You know, I was like, now I'm actually in school, like looking for my future, you know, like who knows, like I've just started learning English, trying to learn in the American culture and seeing how it really was. I think I was like 13 years old, 14 years old, you know, back, back in, in high school when I started. And then, uh, it was a gym right next to us, uh, American top team that was run by Bobby Lashley. No way. Yeah. yeah Bobby Lashley. So I went there. And then I was like, this is pretty cool, man. Like my mom was like, my mom and my dad always keep telling me, it was like, we should have you like just train, like, because you haven't trained in a long time. Like I started kickboxing when I was 10 years old in Morocco and I had my first fight when I was 10 years old. So when I came here, I had to forget about it, all that. All I had to do is learn English and go to school because that's the main thing you do. You know, you come to the United States and have your dad basically take care of you, you know? And then we went in there and I was talking to Bobby Lashley. I don't even know who he was, by the way. Like, I didn't even watch no WWE. Like, I had to look him up after that. And I was like, holy shit, did I just talk to this guy? He was like, <laughs> I was sitting next to this guy, like, talking to this guy. I was like, you kidding that, that me? Being said, like, that being said, I've seen Bobby in person, too. He doesn't look like the average person. That's what I'm saying. So when I talked to him, they had him. He just got done practice. And he was sitting in the chair, sweating. And he had a personal guy that's giving him water and he has a towels on him and he's talking to us. He was, his, he was the manager of the gym. Bobby Lashley was the manager of the gym back then. And he was talking to us and he was sweating and sweating and sweating. The guy keeps giving him a towel, cleans again, gives him a new towel. He's sweat. He's just nonstop. And he was trying to explain to us the prices and all this and that. I was excited. I thought I was going to go in. And then I go, I go back to the apartment complex. And my dad said like, yeah, I can't afford it. You're not, you're not gonna go, you're not gonna go to this gym. So I was like, I was almost like heartbroken. I was like, man, damn. I was like, I was I was pretty excited like to see to 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 go back to kickboxing and really do something fun, you know, like that I really enjoy. So we had to wait another year. Hmm. I waited another year. I'm I'm three years in into into the United States. Uh, he goes in and he's like, he told me, he was like, uh, let's 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 go see the gym again. And we, we looked at it, it was closed. The gym closed. No and way. they opened uh, they opened a bigger one, like a huge one, right like a couple blocks away from us. And then I was like, okay, let's go check it out. We we checked it out and it was Bobby Lashley, but it was he actually had a manager this time. He had everybody, so I'm assuming they were doing good. And then I started doing jujitsu then. That was my first day doing jujitsu. And I walked in there and I was like, the hell is this man i'm like we, we hugging each other we don't know shirts no this no that i was like you sure you want me to do this i thought i came here for kickboxing i was like i didn't come here for jiu-jitsu and he's like no 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 this is mma like an mma gym let's let's explain it start explaining to me and really started like i think the first day we learned was arm bars like first day i was there it was they were showing arm bars and i was like Yusuf, let me, let me let me interrupt for a second because there's a bunch of things I want to get to, and we are a little bit short on time. So wait a second. So where is your dad and your mom now? So my dad is here. 
And my older brother's here, and my brother who passed away was here as well. And then my, my mom and my sister back in Morocco. I seen them last year for the first time in 11 years. So how do they wa- or do they must watch what you're doing? What is the how, how do they watch what you've been up to? So they either watch it like in Abu Dhabi sports or or BT sports, something like that, like stuff like that in, uh, back in Morocco. So like it's like midnight. Like this fight, last fight that I fought, it was midnight down there. It was like one o'clock, and they they were watching it. Does the Moroccan sports media like how much do they care about MMA or do they are they aware of you yet? So they they really didn't care about MMA at the beginning, you know, like they didn't they even know what MMA was, and like now like they uh, like before my fight actually was on the main TV sports uh, section in there. They they showed me on TV and stuff like that. And they showed me after the win as well. So I was like, now they kind of like started to understand MMA, and they were like, okay, we actually have a guy in there that's really showing the the, the Moroccan that like they can really do MMA. Uh, now, how did you end up with Mark Montoya? Because he just seems like such a great fit for you. Yeah, so uh, when I started tra- American Top Team, like six years in, training with American Top Team, my head coach, Al- uh, Alex, uh, Alex Hudson, the, uh, he's like tall, 6'5", six, six, heavyweight. He fought in Bellator. He did a lot of stuff. He's a black belt now and all that. Amazing guy. He, he used to train with Mark. He used to do a mix with Mark Montoya. Hmm. And then the gym shut down again. And then he was like, yeah. So like uh, the gym moved three times. The first one, the biggest one, and then they went to a smaller location and they shut down again. And then he said, I think you come from a striking background and this and that. I think you should go to Factory X. And I was like, okay. So we just went in there and we were trying out Factory X and uh, Muscle Farm. We were trying both of them. And then we just we, we just liked how uh, Factory X was and how how much like how many people went there for my for my weight class. Hmm. Back in American Top Team, I had my main training partner is Austin Jones. He's, he's a welterweight. That was my main training partner, and I was a, uh, a bantamweight back then. And I've I've actually been to that Muscle Farm facility. It's very very nice, but. I don't know. It's like, yeah, you have a bunch of nice machines to work out, but I don't know. It seems to me like, like uh, getting the right fit, the right coach is significantly more important. Yeah, it's, it's just not. It's just not organized, man. It really wasn't. It was like, I couldn't spar with this guy. I couldn't train with this guy. I couldn't train with this guy. So I'm like, hmm. why am I here then? You know, I was like, as soon as I showed up at Factory X, my first round was with Brandon Rival. Like that was my first round in the cage. I was like, what the hell? Like you guys just feed me to the animals. This guy, this kid was insane. <laughs> I was like, we came out. I, he came out with a black guy, I, uh, uh, black guy. I, he came. I came out with a knot right on top of my head. I got submitted. It was, it was, it was an insane round. Like that's where I was like, damn, this is what the, this is what like what a next level is. And like that's when I started fell in love with it and really just, just moved on from there. So what is your family saying? They must be proud of you. I mean, you're undefeated in the UFC. You had a couple losses on the regional scene, but one was a split decision, and the other one was back in 2019. Since then, you've just been on an absolute tear. Are they excited about you being a fighter? Are they, are they nervous? Uh, what do they fall on that spectrum? So my dad, my dad is uh, uh, one that was very nervous about it. He, was, uh, he wanted me to really uh, go to college and do, 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 do you know, what a – what a, a dad should, you know, like they care about their, 
their son's future and stuff like that. My mom, did, we didn't care. But my family first, when they when they saw the MMA fighting, they thought it was until somebody dies, like until somebody dies in the cage. I was like, no, 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 no. There's, there is like rules. Like, you know, they, they don't, they, we don't see this in Morocco. You know, they don't, they don't teach you no MMA and stuff like that. So it was very hard for me to explain to my family, like, yeah, I am going to fight and this is what I want to do. But I didn't want to do this until like when I was 20, you know, 19, 20, I was like, this is it. This is my career. This is what, this is my job. Like this is what I'm going to do. Before I was just doing it, it's just a hobby. You know, I was like, just training and just getting school trained, school trained. I have something to do, you know? But beside that, my mom now never watches me. She never watches me still to this day. Like when they had the fights in Morocco, she was upstairs while everybody else was watching it downstairs. As soon as the fight is over, they called her and she running downstairs and they hear, she hears my name go up and she loses it. And she sends me a message right away. They almost makes me goddamn cry every time, every time I hear that message. So it was, it's pretty cool. My dad, my dad's like the biggest fan now. If you if you interview my dad or talk to my dad, he would not stop talking about me. That's all he does. Like every time he sees his friends, he's like, "Did you see Yusuf's last fight? Yeah, Yusuf's a champion." I was like, "No, no, dad, dad, I'm not a champion yet. Relax. I'm just, I'm just, a, I just fought in the UFC. Yeah, like I'm, I'm just, just another one in the UFC, not a champion yet." And I was like, "Thank you, though, but it, it's pretty cool to see how my dad is right now." Good for you, man. Well, here's we'll end on this. The last thing I'll say is, you know, what's amazing about watching you compete. It's that you're 23. You've got 12 fights, which is a good amount of time, you know, uh, a good, good place to be when you're in the UFC right now. And the thing is, I feel like you actually have a ton of room for improvement. But I want you to understand what I'm about to say. Not because you're not good. Actually, quite the opposite. I can see you have really good timing and really good distance and an understanding of what you're supposed to do. And I can see that those natural abilities that you have developed, there's still so much more you can do with them. So, dude, you're already super talented and you've still got plenty of room to go. If you stay focused, man, you can do something special in the sport. And I absolutely mean that. I don't say that very often on this show. You got something cooking here, man. So keep your head you know, in the books, so to speak, uh, like you were doing in school. You might have something special for you around the corner. Oh, my man, I appreciate it. That's that's like that's why I'm very happy that I, the circle that I have around me, you know, that the people that I have around me and and we really the environment that I I was around, you know, it was like for me it was like like we're not just trying to be average, you know, we we want to be the best of the best and the, like coach Mark Montoya said, we want to be elite in this game, you know, and we really want to learn as much as possible and that's why I would like for me, I like I tell everybody, I'm like I'm like my worst critic ever, you know. It's like I go in fights, like I'm like man, that, like people think this is an awesome fight, or like this, this, and that. And I was like, man, I was like shit to me, you know. Like that was not that was not as 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 good as I wanted it to, you know. I want to be like recon like recognized, like oh, you don't have to have the athletic abilities that everybody else has or anything else. Like you can you really use your brain, like it's cool in fighting, you know. Like you can study the game and really learn the game, you know. You can see the movement you can learn all this stuff like not a lot of guys do this stuff you know and a lot of guys just go in there and fight and that's why a lot of guys do well because all they do is just fight but we can do both and still for me it was like focus on the brain you know i want to i wanted to show my family it was like listen like i know you guys think about the the brain i think about the brain as well and stuff like that so i wanted it to show them like listen my style is like make it less de uh, like hurtful to me and more hurtful to them as possible, you know? And that's why I, I, I think I, I really showed that the last three fights and really 
not get hit as much as as everybody else get hit in the fights. No doubt about it. You got a really smart approach. You got a smart coach. Stay focused, kid. You can do really good stuff. We have to go. Uh, Yusuf, we'll get you back on soon. Enjoy, uh, you know, all the fruits of your labor. Stay focused and uh, congratulations on all your success. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you, man. Thank you. Dan Patrick Radio is Sirius XM's home for Australian rules football. Walked into all styles. Australian media icon Eddie Maguire for Aussie Football Rules America as he brings you the latest celebrity chats, tips and expert analysis of Australian football. Then stay tuned for the Aussie Rules Game of the Week. Kick the goal and Fremantle win it after the siren. It all starts Thursday at 6pm Eastern on Dan Patrick Radio Channel 211 and the Sirius XM app. The next flyweight title shot is going to happen at UFC 255 on November 21st. I don't know where the location is. Is that a Fight Island event? I don't I honestly don't know. I suspect that they might be doing that. Um, but it's TBD as it stands. TBD as it stands. Flyweight title fight. Devison Figueredo going to put his title on the line for the first time in his first defense against Cody Garbrandt. Cody Garbrandt has been one and four, three in his last four contests, all of which were at Bantamweight. To my knowledge, he does not have any flyweight fights on his record. Let me just verify that here very quickly. He has a featherweight bout, his second bout back in 2013. He had a catchweight bout of 142 against Augusto Mendez. It was Mendez who missed weight. The rest of them have all been uh, bantamweight contests. He has never fought as low as 125 pounds. Now, obviously, one of the things you're going to want to ask is, can he make the weight? Can he make the weight safely? And can he make the weight where even if it's you know, relatively safe, does it carry with it performance consequences? I want to know what you think about the UFC awarding Garbrandt a title shot at 125 pounds. 877-FIGHT-93, 877-344-4893. I have questions about a lot of different things. As I just mentioned, can he make the weight? Can he make it safely? Can he perform under those conditions? But my biggest question would be, why, are the, why, like, why is the UFC doing this? Why are you giving a title shot to a guy who literally has a 0-0 zero and zero record in this division? And in the division where he normally competes, uh, he is 1-3 in his last four, 12-3 overall. Now, uh, that's the bad side. The bad side is, you know, he has not been uh, especially active. He had one fight in 2017, one fight in 2018, one fight in 2019, and then one fight in 2020. He had four fights in 2016, so he has not been especially active, and when he has been, it has not gone very well for him. He got TKO'd by Dillashaw back-to-back. Again, there's now a caveat around that, but it is what the record shows, and then he got KO'd in probably the worst performance of his career against Pedro Munoz, certainly of his professional career anyway. So you're like, how are they going to give that guy a title shot? Well, like anything, that's the bad side of the story. There are always two sides, and there is a good one. Since those three losses, he went and changed things up a little bit. I know that he was a bit of a ride-or-die guy for Team Alpha Male. I suspect on some level he still kind of is, but this sort of weird adherence where you can only train there and you can train no other place if you want to train there, and that was why they were going to beef with Dillashaw. It appears that like that is no longer a operating principle of what they're doing. 
uh, what not what he's doing. I don't know what the team's rule is anymore, but he decided to switch things up. So now he is with, I think he still is with Team Alpha Male, but he is also with the guys over what I call the East Coast Super Friends, which is Ricardo Almeida, Mark Henry, and uh, that ilk. He's also done some cross-training at times with Brandon Gibson, although I don't think that is the current state of things. So, okay, he had a bad run there, but he switched things up. What was the result? He came back against, admittedly, an aging Rafael Sensao, but still a very, very good one. Very, very close fight up until it just wasn't when Cody Garbrandt winged a right hand over the top and knocked him out with one punch, walked off KO. If you're going to come back and try to answer questions, that's a great way to do it. So while he is one and three in his last four, he is coming off of a win. The losing streak has stopped, and that win was against a credentialed opponent, and he won in emphatic fashion. That is part of the good news. The other part of the news, I wouldn't call it good or bad, just sort of what it is, which is what were the UFC's alternatives? Of course, if you wanted to have a meritocratic argument about this and you want to say it should go to another real natural flyweight, what are you going to say about that? There's no real counter to that. You can make up reasons to counter that, but if you're speaking about meritocracy, that is the beginning and the end of that conversation. However, if you are speaking about what the public has an appetite for or what is commercially viable, well, then the conversation begins to change. If you are going to have a conversation about less so meritocracy, but what could just be interesting, what could just be competitive, sometimes people conflate meritocracy with how good the competition is, and that's not the right thing to do. That's not the argument. The argument is not um, you can only be competitive by picking the most meritocratic choice. In fact, sometimes that's exactly the opposite. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily the case here. I'm just saying you have to disentangle the two. You can find meritocratic opponents that are tough, and you can find meritocratic opponents that are not. You can find opponents that have nothing to do with meritocracy who are super tough, and then, of course, the opposite of that. They are not necessarily related. And that is part of this appeal. There is an argument to make that the way in which Cody was showing himself against a Sun Sal is that he has a, a degree of caution he'll be exercising in ways that he didn't, which frankly you would say is necessary for winning, but it may not be necessary for, or at least a, a strong condition of excitement. Still, there is also some reason to believe that a Cody Garbrandt fight versus Devison Figueredo will deliver on more fan expectation and excitement than some of the potential alternatives. So that's there. But the big key is to look at who were the other two possible choices that UFC could have gone with. I mentioned two because I don't know how you could have any others. The two top choices would have been Brandon Moreno or Askar Askarov. Now, why didn't the UFC go with them? They could have. In fact, you really could have gone with Brandon Moreno. I think the reasons are pretty straightforward. Both of them are deserving flyweights if there are any deserving flyweights at all. If you're going to pick flyweights and you're going to say who stands out as a top contender, those are the names you have to conclude are at the top of that division. You don't like one, you can go with the other. I would have said Moreno is a little bit more deserving than Askarov, but your mileage may vary. The key for me, though, is not that. 
The key is, what did they do to earn a title shot? And when I ask that question, it means two different things. One is, what did they do to put themselves at the relative top of their division? The second part is, did you do something spectacular along the way to rally public support? Did you do something along the way to capture the public's imagination? Did you do something that just you can really hang your hat on as a not merely identifying feature of your greatness, but as just a seminal moment on your path to the top of the food chain? And the answer is for both of them, not really. Now, understand what I'm saying to you. You don't necessarily have to have those things to merit a title shot. In fact, a lot of people get title shots without them. But it looks like the UFC, after reconsidering things, wants to grow their division. Moreno is young. Askarov is young. They are winning fighters. They're coming off, I think, two wins themselves, both of them decisions. But very tough fights, very entertaining fights. They're talented. But neither has had that moment where they really kind of stuck it to somebody and got a title shot. And I know what people are saying. Aldo lost and he's got a title shot right but he captured a lot of people's imagination by making the weight it seemed safely and performing at a high level doing it and by the way some people thought he won that it's certainly in dispute that's the key here it's not so much what you got in the win and loss columns although they matter a key ingredient in all of that is what did you do to make the fans sit up and take notice and remember you and say wow do you recall when they did this And again, your mileage on that is going to vary, but I would humbly submit, I think the UFC went in this direction because Cody has better name value. Cody had that moment against Rafael Sunsell, again, albeit at 135. And Askarov and Moreno do not have it. Not yet. They are talented enough where you would imagine something like that is frankly inevitable. But it has not materialized as I speak to you right now. So that's why they went that way. They went that way because you have an opponent who captured the imagination, who could reasonably make the weight, who has some name value that can help you jumpstart this division or Figueredo's reign or something like that. I don't necessarily love the call, but I'd be lying to you if I told you I hated the call. And here's why. I don't hate the call Because, you know, let's be honest about flyweight for just a second. They did gut it. The guy who was the previous champion in Henry Cejudo dropped it and walked away, not merely from that weight class, but from the sport. And the UFC, you know, they they made their own errors in releasing a bunch of people too. It's not to say that bad luck just happened to them. But, you know, kind of understand something here. The UFC had to make a choice about if we're going to keep this thing around, how do we resuscitate it? This is a way to do that. It's not the way to do it, and it creates some additional problems because what happens if Cody wins and then decides he wants to go up and fight the winner of what I presume will be Sterling versus Jan? Is he going to drop it again? Is he, does he have any intentions of defending that belt? You guys know as well as I do You can be a champ champ only if you have one and a half divisions, right? If you have like uh, women's featherweight and women's bantamweight, you can be a champ champ. 
If you have, and you can, even that you can only do for a short time. For a short time, you can play that heavyweight, light heavyweight game. It's really about it. You can't do flyweight and bantamweight at the same time. It's not possible. You can't stay healthy. You're not going to, I mean, it's just not a thing you can do. So they're creating problems down the road. But I understand why they might want to take the paddles to the division and, you know, and get it going again. My only concern about all of this, my only problem with it, to be quite honest with you, is <laughs> you don't have to resort to things like this if you don't end up gutting your division. It's like I get that the UFC wants to take this measure as a way to like uh, fix what's broken and you know put some life into the division. Okay, man, you, you're all, all, you just be hating on that if you if you suggest that like the better call is to give it to Moreno because that would actually be better for business. The, the argument for Moreno and Askarov is not one of business. But at the same time, it's like, dude, you only have to go around them because, yeah, they, you know, they're still putting their resumes together. But the other part of it is because you just drained it. You drained 125. You made it inhospitable territory. And now you're trying to rebuild it. So, okay, I don't mind the rebuilding, but just, you know, connect the dots here. You don't have to do that if you don't drain it to begin with. That's the reality. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.